Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Book of Acts, please, in chapter 20. While you're looking that up, I'm glad to be with you. Wasn't here last week, I was elsewhere. And you had someone else here. And while I was elsewhere, I was speaking in a church and standing at the door at the back and saying goodbye to people, as you do. A very nice gentleman came out and he told me that he wanted to complain about the sermon. And I asked him what was his complaint. He says, you kept waking me up. Would you not just keep your voice at the one level so I can sleep? (laughs) And I thought, that's interesting, because we're going to read tonight about a man who fell asleep in church. Acts chapter 20 and verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him, said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even until break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. And we went before to ship, and sailed to Assos, there intending to take in Paul. For so had he appointed minding himself to go afoot. Amen. Aye. There's nothing in the Bible by chance or by accident. This passage is there for a reason. So let me start by asking you, have you ever had a Eutychus moment. Let me describe it for you so that you'll recognize it. You're exhausted. It's been a hard week. I've had a hard week, one way or another. It's been a hard week. And it comes to the Lord's Day, and you're still exhausted, and you really, really, really want to be in bed. You want to lie on. But still, it's the Lord's day. 
So you get up and you come to church. And you sit down. And you realize that the heat is going full blast. And the service starts and you stand up and you sit down. And you stand up and you sit down. And then comes the big sit. 30 minutes or so. Maybe more. And the preacher starts. And it's not long before you lose track of what he's saying. Because he's got this awfully boring voice. And he just drones on, on and on and on in a monotone. And your mind wanders. And you start to feel your eyelids getting heavy. And you think to yourself, you know, I'll just close them for a wee minute. And the next thing you hear is Colin's voice. Psalm number 71. We'll stand to sing. And you realize that you've missed most of the sermon. So this little passage is about a man just like that. A man who fell asleep in the meeting. And whose sleepiness is recorded for us in the Bible so that we can learn from it and so that we can be encouraged by it as the people at Troas were. So we're going to see here a very interesting insight into early church practice and fellowship. I like church history and I'm always trying to find out more about it. And right back in the book of Acts, we have church history, beginning. So in verse 7, we read, Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now there's lots we can learn about the early church just from that verse, those first Christians. Look at the look at the day. And look at the time. Both of those are important. It's the first day of the week. And it's in the evening. A few years ago, I had a visitor at the door. And when I went to the door, it turned out that he was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's unusual. We're more used to having Jehovah's Witnesses locking the door. Seventh-day Adventist Church man wasn't terribly concerned about evangelism. He began haranguing me about worshipping on a Sunday. And they're not the only ones who would do that. The so-called Worldwide Church of God still worship on a Saturday, even though they've dropped most of their other false beliefs. The Seventh-day Adventist man tried to argue with me that worship on the first day of the week was introduced by the Emperor Constantine in the early 4th century, right about 300 to 310 uh, AD. And he said that the reason that Constantine had introduced Sunday worship was because Constantine, who claimed to be converted to Christianity, was nothing of the sort. He was actually a worshipper of the sun god, 
or as they called him, the all-conquering son. Now, I don't know whether Constantine was truly converted or not. Uh, none of us will know that. We'll not know till we get to heaven and we'll see if he's there. One thing we do know is the Seventh-day Adventist man didn't know any church history because the first recorded instance of worship on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, is in the passage we read together. Whereupon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, that's when they worshipped. And that was the normative practice of the church right from those very first days right until now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2, Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him. That was the practice in the church. I've just finished um, working on an essay on Ignatius of Antioch, uh, one of our favorite church history characters, the man who was going to be martyred and who wrote letters to churches. It's 750 to 7,500 words long. I'm going to try and condense it and make it into a podcast, which you might have soon. It'll be really, really boring because it's so long. But Ignatius, in writing his letters around about the turn of the first century, was stating that it was normal for Christians to meet on the Lord's Day. When the Seventh-day Adventists or others tell you that first day of the week worship was only invented in the fourth century, point them to Paul and point them to Ignatius later on and point them to a boy called Eutychus who was at a meeting. So let's see what this Lord's Day meeting was like. It was, first of all, essentially... And this is obvious, it was a meeting. I know I've already said that. The disciples came together. The meeting was seemingly informal and casual uh, compared with our very well-planned meetings with our set times. Of course, things have changed and people have to travel now to come to church. In Troas, where Paul is, they would simply have had a local town a large village, and it would just have been the case that everybody knew that the Christians were going to be there at a certain time. It was the natural thing to do for Christians to assemble. When they finished their work for the day, they sought each other's company. So it was the late evening. In fact, as we're going to see, the meeting actually took place all night. After all, we've already noticed, haven't we, how self-sacrificial early Christians were in their worship. Remember back at Ephesus, when we learned that Paul preached and taught in the lecture hall while the whole town was asleep. It was the hottest part of the day. And those who attended the lectures did so during their rest periods of the working day. People that were at this meeting would have worked all day. Many of the early believers were slaves. They worked from dawn to dark, seven days a week. They weren't given rest periods or stat days or annual leave. 
There was a guy who was a deacon in a church where I was the minister, and he worked for the government. And believe it or not, he even had stress days in case he felt a bit stressed pushing the papers round his desk and had to take a wee day off to recover. Slaves didn't have that. If they wanted to meet with other believers, they had to meet after work. They had to meet late in the evening. These were committed believers. So the first thing we see is they were meeting and they were eating. They came together to break bread. And again, we see there an interesting part of New Testament history. The disciples, when they met, would eat together. The phrase, break bread, of course, is familiar to us as evangelicals, isn't it? We think of it as being synonymous with the Lord's Supper. I was speaking to a man one day about a mutual colleague and a friend. We hadn't, or I hadn't seen him for quite some time. And I asked how this man was, and this other gentleman replied by saying that he'd met him just recently, and they had broke bread together. It turns out that what they had actually was a meal in a restaurant. And I was, I was actually offended that he had used a term that we use for the Lord's Supper talking about an ordinary meal. And yet, most commentators think that that's exactly what was happening here in Troas. You see, when the disciples came together, they shared their resources. Remember that in the early church, things were shared around. In Acts chapter 4, it tells us that the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. So you think if you're a slave in Troas, and you're a Christian, and your master feeds you through the week, you don't get paid for being a slave. You get a straw bed to lie on out in the shed. And you get scraps. Whatever your master leaves on his plate, he scrapes it off the plate and he puts it into a bowl and that's your food. And that's what you live on all week. And if the master happens to eat everything on the plate, then you go, you just go without. Because you're a slave. You're a nobody. But when that slave came to meet with the other believers, those who had food would not count it as their own food. They would count it as a gift from God. And they would bring that food to the gathering. And before they would start to worship, they would share out the food so that no one would go hungry. If you're a slave, that's probably your only solid meal of the week. And quite likely, at some stage during that meal, at some stage during that love feast, while they're at the table, they would pause, as Jesus and the disciples had done at the Last Supper. And they would have 
the Lord's Supper as a part of that meal. That's why Paul has to write to the Corinthians to regulate that. That's exactly what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn with it. Turn with me to it, please, just at the minute. Because I think it's worth actually finding this out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read about the instructions for the Lord's Supper. Paul writes in verse 18, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before another his own supper. One is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So the Corinthians in their greed and in their gluttony and in their selfishness are turning this love feast into a farce. And the poor slave that I was talking about a minute ago, he walks in through the door and he's absolutely starving because he has no money and no food. And some of the Corinthians are saying, it's mine. You're not getting it. I'm going to eat here until I'm absolutely full and sated. Be a glutton. You're going to sit and watch. Then we'll have the Lord's Supper. So there's meeting and there's eating and there's teaching. That's the other important aspect of the meeting. It's teaching content. Paul spoke at the meeting. So he's leaving the next day and he wants to spend as much time as possible teaching them Christian truth. So he begins to teach 
And while we don't know what, what time the meeting began, we do know that it would be after dark, when the slaves were able to stop work. And we do know that Paul spoke to midnight. The word spoke here, by the way, doesn't mean a sermon like I'm doing now. Paul preached like a rabbi. That's why they were in this room. He would have been sitting at the front of the room with his scriptures open on his lap and the people would have been sitting around him and it would have been, well, the Greek here is the word dialegomai, a dialogue. It would have been a catechism class. There would have been instruction and there'd be questions and there'd be answers and the people would raise points of discussion and Paul would refute them and and draw them into the scriptures. It's not like a modern day small group that you get in some churches where somebody shares a wee verse that the Lord has laid on their heart and then everybody takes turn to say, well, here's what this wee verse means to me. It's nothing like that. Paul's leadership of the class was authoritative. He wasn't sharing. He was teaching. Dialogue, who am I? And look at the occasion, verse 8. Verse 8 tells us here that they were in an upper chamber with many lights in it, gathered together. It was an upper room. We know that many of the upper, of the Roman cities had what we would think of as tenements, like they have in Glasgow. And this room was on the third floor. And this would be a private home. And it's after dark. And there's many lights. And then we come to this young man, Eutychus. And we have a very important question to ask. Look at verse 9. And there sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sank down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. So here's this sleepy young man who falls asleep during the meeting. It was April. Actually, some of the commentators, I think F.F. Bruce, now is it down to the 24th of April, A.D. 57, which is pretty good reckoning by my account. And the weather in Troas in April would have been humid and hot. And there'd have been smoke from the lamps and there'd have been dim light and there's a long effect of concentration and there's the tiredness following a long day's work. Don't think of this young man as a small child. The Greek word here is the word neanaas, which would imply a young man in the prime of life, probably in his late teens or early twenties. So he moves over to the window and he sits at the window, a long, narrow slit in the wall that goes right down to the floor, no glass, just wooden doors or lattice work that could be closed and opened. And he goes to get some fresh air. And even with the fresh air from the window, he falls into a deep sleep. Look at the effects of that fall. He fell down from the third loft and was taken up 
dead. That's quite a drop. The effect of that fall would have been fatal. Broken bones, punctured organs, head injuries. Highly unlikely anybody's going to survive. Or at least survive without life-changing injuries. And don't forget Luke's there, and he's a doctor. This is an eyewitness account. And the detail here is a result of the writer having actually witnessed the event at first hand. And Luke makes a diagnosis. This boy's dead. Life's extinct. Eutychus is clinically dead. And the people begin to mourn vocally, as is the custom in the East. And here's where things get a wee bit difficult. Was he dead? Or was he not? Look at verse 10. Because when Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him, he then said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Paul says he's not dead. Now this is where things get a wee bit difficult, and we have to look at it. At first, Paul's exclamation appears to contradict Luke's initial assessment. So there's two possibilities. First of all, perhaps Eutychus wasn't dead. Perhaps he's just comatose from the fall. Perhaps Dr. Luke's initial assessment has been far too quick. And when Paul put his arms round the boy, he realized, in fact, that the young man is still breathing, albeit faintly, and his heart is still beating, albeit faintly, and he's not dead. Or perhaps Luke is right. And Eutychus is really dead. And when Paul cast himself upon the boy, it was an action of resurrection that he was bringing Eutychus back to life, that God was bringing Eutychus back to life. Now, there's biblical precedents for that. Elijah and Elisha, as you know, had similar experiences. For the sake of time, we're not going to turn to them. But in your spare time, go to First Kings 17 and verse 19. Or Second Kings 4, verse 34. Well, we'll have to think about that one, won't we? Which was true. Um, I'm just glad for this moment that this passage is recorded. Because it wouldn't be the first time someone's fell asleep during a sermon I've preached. And I'm quite glad it happened to Paul too. It makes me feel a wee bit better. Up in Randallstown, there was an old fella came to the meeting well in his seventies, and he used to fall asleep every morning. One morning he fell asleep, and he snored so loudly that he put everybody else off. And whenever we finished the service and the closing prayer was ended, another old fella, about the same age, sitting on the other side of the church, jumped to his feet, ran across the room, grabbed a praise book, and slapped the first old fellow over the head, right in front of everybody. He says, see you, Johnny. You've ruined a really good meeting. <laughs> Don't be doing that. It's just a wee bit comforting to know that if Paul did it, 
I've done it too. Let's go back. Which of these theories is true? Was Eutychus dead and when Paul fell upon him, he was brought back to life? Or was Luke wrong and he wasn't dead at all? Well, there's more to it than just simply uh, a question of being dead or alive. Because what's going to happen next is we're going to have in the text the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Let's go back, this is really important, to verse 11. We've seen verse 9 and 10. We've seen what Luke said. We've seen what Paul said. Now, Paul says, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while. Look at the structure of verse 11. They went back to the room. They ate and broke bread. They broke bread and had eaten. So, I'm now going to say, despite what I said earlier, that when they broke bread in this context, they were having communion, the Lord's Supper. After the meal, the dialogue began again. They had the Lord's Supper, they had a meal, and then the dialogue began again, and the lessons went on to daybreak, and then the slaves would have to go back to work. Their fellowship, their communion, their Christian education had continued all night at that stage, and Paul then left them. Now, one of the reasons why I had at first gone with the theory that Eutychus hadn't been dead, just knocked out, and I, that was my first impression. Luke was right. Uh, Luke, Luke actually uh, was wrong, rather. I'm getting confused now. Luke was wrong. Luke had been an error in his diagnosis. When a man was raised from the dead in the New Testament, it was always for a purpose. It was always to prove and illustrate a doctrinal or theological point. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, why did he do it? It wasn't just because he loved Lazarus. It was to show that the power to overcome death and experience resurrection to eternal life lay in his divine, gracious gift, didn't it? John 11, verse 23. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? There's a theological point being taught to prove the point that he was the life, that he was the resurrection. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But you see, I can't read any theological point being illustrated. If, if Eutychus has risen from the dead, why? Why would it have happened? What was being illustrated 
in his resurrection. And then I found the connection. It came to me one day when I was sitting reading through this again and scratching my head and trying to understand it. And then I thought of it. I know exactly what it is. It's to prove a point about the Lord's Supper. Because what's going to happen next after this young man has been raised from the dead? After all, Luke thought he was dead. He was. He's a doctor. Paul then went down and lay on him and embraced him. And life flooded back into him. Why? What's it proving? Here's what it's proving. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. At the Lord's table, when we gather to break bread together, we look back to the cross, don't we? We look back to the place where our salvation was purchased. But there's another aspect to it, an eschatological aspect. Not only do we look back, but if you've read that passage in 1 Corinthians carefully, you'll see that it says that we do this to show the Lord's death, what? Till he comes. Now, I'm going to ask you something. What happens on the day that the Lord comes? Do you know? The dead shall rise, shan't they? So think about it for a minute. Paul's going to get the people back up into that upper room. And he sets them down and he says to them, Now before we have our meal, we're going to break bread. And here's the words of institution. This do... As oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. And some wee man in the audience or the congregation will put his hand up because it's a, remember it's a dialogue. And he'll say, what'll happen when Jesus comes? Did you not see what happened to Eutychus? He rose from the dead. And he's right here with us now, sitting in this room, having fellowship with us, because now our fellowship with him is fully restored. And then he says, And now that we've had the Lord's Supper, let us eat. Why are we going to eat? Did you not see Eutychus? What's going to happen when the Lord returns? What's going to take place in the heavenly realms when the Lord returns? What do we call it? We call it the great marriage supper. There's going to be a feast in heaven. Our communion is going to be complete when the Lord returns. There's this eschatological element in the Lord's Supper that reminds us that a day will come when the Lord will return and we will have fellowship with him when we shall be raised from the dead and we shall be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
and our communion will be forever with the Lord. You take us has become a living illustration, literally living illustration of that truth. The next morning, Paul's leaving. This is the last time he'll be preaching in Troas. He's going to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be taken prisoner and he's going to be brought to Rome and he's going to die there. But you see, these sorrowing Christians are not going to sorrow without hope because they have just learned in the most astonishing way that they will meet him again in glory. Just the same as Eutychus had been resurrected to participate in communion. So they too will be resurrected to participate in God's greatest reunion day ever. That's some illustration, isn't it? That's some sermon illustration. Is it any wonder that in verse 12, the Christians at Troas brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted? You know, it's like Paul writing to the Thessalonians when he talks about the Lord's coming and people who have gone on before and how the Lord will come and the dead in Christ shall rise and we shall meet them again. And he says to the Christians in Thessalonica, therefore comfort yourselves with these words. Do you know, every time we meet round the Lord's table, I know that it's primarily for us to look back to the cross, but comfort yourselves. Comfort yourselves with the fact that one day we shall meet again around the festive board of the Lamb. Sometimes the young people, I see them on social media and they're, they're going off on holidays or they're waiting for their birthday or something, or they're getting married. And they'll put on Facebook just four more sleeps. Did you ever say that? Just three more sleeps. Just two. Every time we have the Lord's table, just one last time do we meet the Lord face to face. So Paul's week in Troas has reached its end and it's time to go. And his original plan had been to depart on the Monday. They were ready, verse 7, ready to depart on the morrow. But things have changed. In verse 13, we learned that he had sent the others on ahead on the ship, but that he remained in Troas for a time and then travelled overland by foot wonder why. Why did he change his plans and stay behind? We're not told. Just surmising perhaps that he stayed overnight the next day for the check that Eutychus was doing all right. Because you see Christianity, not just all about doctrine, 
about being concerned about our brothers and sisters, checking if they're okay, praying that the Lord will be with them. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.